Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a um, good start to your uh, week, and I hope that you all of you also had a good weekend as well, no matter where you live in the world. But it is certainly great to be back on the air with you guys, and I know for some of you, some of you, you were probably beginning to wonder when exactly uh, would Kirk Monroe be back on the air. Well, the good news to report is that I am on the air with you guys, uh, so that's the answer right there. Uh, but I am certainly uh, excited about being back on the air and uh, being able to uh, present to you all another uh, segment episode to the uh, current uh, book topic uh, podcast series that we are on being uh, Michael Schumacher's Torn in Two, The Sinking of the Daniel J. Morrell, and One Man's Survival on the Open Sea. You know, um, as I was um, preparing for this uh, next uh, podcast uh, segment episode, I um, had to be reminded of just how far uh, we've come. And it is easy sometimes to assume that, that here we are, talking about the year 1966, it would be easy to assume that um, whatever technology um, is around now, if it wasn't around, say, 60 years ago, it might there might have been some other form of technology that might have uh, been somewhat closer. And what I mean by that is, is that, well, for example, uh, believe it or not, the National Weather Service has been around since... Um, well, it used to be called the Signal Service, but then it changed its name to the National Weather Service just bef- either just before the 19th century ended or come around sometime around the start of the 20th century. But I do know that um, that the um, that w- what we know of as the National Weather Service has been around um, a lot longer than we think. However, uh, forecasting models have changed, and what I have to be reminded of is that that uh, whatever forecasting models were used, say, 60 years ago, were revolutionary, perhaps, for their time. But at the same time, those forecasting models didn't always get everything right. So, in other words, uh, one um, agency or or one location may have uh, issued in a city, say, like Chicago, Illinois, might have issued one uh, warning, but yet another warning may not have come out until, say, five hours later. The bottom line is, is that um, it just goes to show you that um, forecasting, while it's while making forecasting predictions hasn't changed, it's just that the technology has changed, and now um, weather forecasters have better means in today's world to be able to forecast um, uh, incoming storms than they did say 60 years ago. Now I know if I keep on going like I am now there may not even be a need for me to do a podcast uh, segment episode because what I can tell you all is that um, as we um, venture into this uh, episode segment, we're going to learn about um, more about the um, infamous month of November. And I know that uh, most of us by now would know that uh, being out on the waters in the month of November along the Great Lakes not only is challenging, but it's also uh, uncertain, or perhaps it's best to say nothing is ever certain, especially when it comes to the month of November. Maybe it's because the shipping season is uh, coming to an end, and maybe there are those who want to go out one more time just to make an extra profit, or to get, or with the hopes of getting a, a bonus that will um, last not only the individual through um, through the winter 
but perhaps if the individual is married with a family, that extra bonus does go a long way. But then we have to ask ourselves, is it really worth pursuing means of um, making more money? Is it really worth risking your life in the month of November when so many things are uncertain just to uh, make a couple of extra bucks? Well, sure, things could, other things could go wrong before the month of November out on the waters, but it just so happens that November is one of those months that is make it or break it. Not only from a uh, job um, uh, from a job standpoint in terms of uh, job security, but whether or not you'll survive, and that is the risk that uh, many of uh, many sailors have taken. They have either come home alive, surviving a storm, or they have sadly not made it home alive. So, um, I will uh, get the show going on here in a moment. Uh, but one thing I will point out is that uh, uh, late last week, and then over the weekend, my wife and I were in uh, West Virginia um, at our alma mater, uh, Davis and Elkins in Elkins, West Virginia. Uh, Harrisonburg, Harrisonburg, Virginia is the uh, halfway point. But it certainly was great to be back there. Uh, we hadn't been back there since uh, right before the pandemic began. It was really great to see uh, her alma mater. It looked it, it's her alma mater is doing well, and she also received an, an award for her uh, volunteerism with the school. So it was um, it was great to be back uh, for a whole host of reasons. But it was also great to see um, other um, Davis and Elkins alums whom either graduated uh, before my wife did or just right after. But nonetheless, we, they all shared something in common and that they were all, you know, that they're all proud alums. Even though I didn't attend the college, um, I have gotten to know many alums, and it's always uh, a pleasure to see those uh, people. I also had the pleasure on my way home of stopping at my alma mater, uh, Bridgewater College, and I also got to uh, spend, um, I got to uh, see a, a good buddy of mine whom I hadn't seen in four years. So I guess to sum it up is that it's one thing to visit your alma mater, but it's also making the time to do it. You know, we think we have all this time in the world sometimes, but we don't. And if we're not careful, time itself slips away. And then when we hear about someone passing away or someone or something is wrong with someone that you know that we thought highly of it's like man how come we didn't how come i didn't get the chance to see that person or how come things just didn't work out did i not make enough effort you know sometimes people will say those things but i know that it's uh, very important to make every effort to reach out to uh, people uh, whom I was uh, good friends with in college, whom I'm still uh, good friends with today. And I'm not saying any of this to brag, folks. I, I'm not. But the, the bottom line is that, you know, yes, all of us uh, do have our own lives to live. And, you know, the older we get, sometimes getting together isn't as easy as it once used to be. But what it boils down to is making sure that you always find the time to either check in or uh, coordinate something uh, down the road because, uh Sometimes you never know what what'll happen. Uh, not to sound scary, not to sound depressing, but sometimes unexpected things do happen, and then you, you're left to wonder. You know, man, I would have given anything in the world to have seen that person again. So, nonetheless, it was a, a great time, a good getaway, and um, you know, can't stay gone forever. But it is uh, good to be back. Uh, it, it was a, a great adventure, to say the least. But I do think it is time to get the show on the road.
with our next um, podcast uh, segment topic. And as I said earlier, we're going to learn more about the uh, month of November. We're also going to learn um, such things as to whether or not the captain would have had the final say over whether or not to sail or stay in as the uh, shipping seasons uh, were near that uh, closing time of uh, when uh, the seasons were going to be ending. Uh, we will also learn about um, other such things as to, um, like, uh, the, the captains of these vessels as they um, continue their journey uh, onward because uh, they are going to be in, um, they're going to be in for a, um, I can tell you this much, they're going to be in for a, a very, very um, unique uh, challenge, uh, one that they have uh, never faced before, but one that no captain uh, would ever take lightly or or I should say that all captains have to assume that the inevitable can happen, but for some captains, they probably never dealt with this uh, before in terms of November's fury, but it does happen. So let's get the show on the road. Is it fair to say the 11th month of the year was feared heavily by sailors? Uh, the answer is a definitive yes. Uh, for starters, Storms on the Great Lakes tended to be violent over a course of 30 days, when temperatures were constantly changing, changing along with cold air masses from the north, passing over water considered still warm from summer. Secondly, boats could leave port early on in the day, only to sail along clear water, thinking everything would be fine. In other words, clear water, no, no breaks in the water, no, no signs of water being choppy. Everything's just fine. Sun's at, the sun is shining. I mean, nothing to worry about. Then out of nowhere, say come late day, the unexpected loomed on the horizon. How about surprise storms? Not just thunderstorms, but say temperatures plummeting all of a sudden, and they're plummeting to the point where you went from a early from being in the day earlier of a high of, say, 65 now to where the temperatures have dropped 30 degrees with no end in sight. Winds are picking up. Winds could be changing. And now all of a sudden, you start seeing waves in the water. Not, not big waves, but small waves that have the potential to uh, build up into uh, larger waves if the temperatures continue to plummet. So that's just the most uh, typical 101 example of where uh, the saying goes, nothing is ever certain in the month of November. You know, as I mentioned earlier about uh, weather forecasting and how even over a course of just shy of 60 years, how weather forecasting has changed, we do need to keep in mind that even not just so much at the earliest beginnings of the 20th century, but even around the middle of the 20th century, that weather tools such as Doppler radar, you know, Doppler radar can tell us uh, the overall levels of radar from light to moderate to heavy, but Doppler radar now can tell us, you know, even further out as to how, uh, what direction the storm is going to come at, what likelihood it's what likelihood is it that there's a potential that it could um, go the opposite direction or still go in the same direction? Yeah, 60 years ago that might not have been available. GPS systems, of course, when we think of GPS systems, well, we always think of placing a GPS in our 
automobile in terms of getting from point A to point B. But there are GPS systems, folks, that are even used for uh, earthquakes, you know, that, that, that are placed underground, uh, most notably in California, where they can uh, detect uh, the mo ground movement underground and determine what areas of, say, the San Andreas Fault are most vulnerable of, of an earthquake. And it doesn't always have to be, you know, the big one, like a 6.7, you know, there are earthquakes that happen with uh, 2 to 3.0 on a Richter scale. Uh, but as for GPS systems, yes, GPS systems were not around in terms of uh, nearly 60 years ago with uh, forecasting uh, weather storms on the Great Lakes, as well as uh, computerized storm projection models. These simply are just not available around the mid-20th century, although there still is a National Weather Service like there is today. Uh, the first half of the 20th century saw weather reporting simply to be inconsistent. Information on weather conditions were collected from many Great Lakes weather reporting stations, one of them most notably being uh, Chicago, Illinois, where weather maps got drawn up, but one constant that changed was the weather. Okay, so we have a weather map drawn up, say, at around 9 a.m., Okay, that's great. You could send it to all the other weather stations um, on the Great Lakes, but the problem is, is how soon can you get another one drawn out? And how soon can you get it sent uh, to other stations on the Great Lakes so that they can update their systems? Because what you got at 9 a.m., it's not going to probably be the same come 3 o'clock in the afternoon weather-wise later in the day. So, uh, yes, one constant that uh, changed was weather, which meant data itself could never be 100% reliable once attained. So it's one thing to have uh, a, a weather report, but is it fair to say that three or four hours later, is that weather report still going to be 100% reliable in terms of the data? It's just not. Uh, did the captain himself have the final say over whether or not to sail or stay in? You know, being a captain of a ship, it's a glamorous position. It's not something that gets handed to you overnight. You work your way up the ladder. Uh, if you um, know that it's something you want to attain, you obviously go to school to become a captain. But it's one thing to be the captain of your ship, but you also have to um, think about the safety not only of the ship itself, but that of the crew serving below you. And you have to ask yourself, you know, okay, am I willing to risk it one more time to um, meet the company's needs, or am I going to stay in and uh, think about the safety of those uh, below me? At the same time, the company, <laughs> it's like the saying, you may, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. At the same time, a lot of captains are forced to go out into the waters at the end of, uh, in the latter part of November, because, you know, the company is struggling profit-wise. They need to um, make a few extra runs to make up for some uh, deficits that are still looming to get out of the red. So why not go a few more times, get whomever you can on there, and we'll see to it that they get lined up with some bonuses. All that's great, but... <laughs> You know, bonuses will always be there. Money will always be there. But what about what about your life? What about you as an individual? What about your crew? 
they're not going to always be around. If a storm comes, take takes everybody away. Think of you know if if you're the CEO of one of these companies, who are you going to have to answer? You're going to have to answer to all the uh, the widows and their children. So it's a double-edged sword that either that that a captain is either willing to risk or not. But as for the question, did the captain himself have the final say over whether or not to sail or stay in? And the answer is yes. One element which persuaded captains to sail around late November had to do with, as I said earlier, something about bonuses. Yeah, how about potential bonuses? This pertained to uh, tonnage hauls, especially if it meant taking their vessels out for a few more runs come late season. You know, it's not so much, yeah, making up the deficits, but... Um, but if you're hauling extra cargo in terms of tonnage and you uh, deliver that cargo, then not only are you making up for what's in the red, but you're also able to, um, you know, make up for um, anything else that, um, that previously was working against you and now it's working to your advantage. A captain such as Captain Arthur Crawley of the SS Daniel J. Morrell was ordered at the last minute to make trips as a means of satisfying the company's tonnage numbers. Now, there are two different types of captains, folks. We have what are called the cautious captains, and then we have what are called the heavy weather captains. The cautious captains kept vessels off waters when the weather got rough. There's nothing wrong with that, but... I think it is fair to say the more cautious you are as a captain and not willing to take uh, chances, then the less, the greater the likelihood that the crew below you may not have a whole lot of confidence in you uh, down the road, not just short term, but long term. The crew needs to feel confident about their captain, even if it means taking a couple of loads at the last minute towards the end of the season. As for the heavy weather captains, they risked it all. They weren't afraid to tackle on fierce winds and waves of 10 feet or more. Maybe it's fair to say that the heavy weather captains have survived a few storms in their lifetime and have, all, and have always managed to survive and live to tell uh, the stories to future generations whom are interested in going out on the water as a career. All that's great, but even it might be fair to say that even the heavy, some heavy weather captains did not always survive to, to live to tell the story. But if there are heavy weather captains out there, which there are, I say more power to them for at least um, being brave enough to, uh, to uh, not be afraid of taking on uh, waves that are 10 feet or more. You know, yes, you can be afraid and cautious all you want, but there does come a point in time where you have to be willing to get over it. Otherwise, as somebody else might say, you probably don't have any business being out on the water if you were, if you were that afraid of dealing with a 10-foot wave. Did Captains Thomas Connolly and Arthur Crowley each have significant experience along the lakes? Yes, Captain Connolly of the SS Edward Y. Townsend spent 27 of his 48 years on the lakes, whereas Captain Arthur Crowley of the SS Daniel J. Morrell had worked on the waters for 29 years, and each man was well familiar with Lake Huron. Well, that's good to be familiar, 
You have to be familiar, otherwise you shouldn't be out on the waters. Lake Huron got its name per French explorers whom named it for the Indian tribe occupying the region. Uh, they were known as the Huron, but another name uh, often associated was the Wyandotte Nation. Did uh, Captains Connolly and Crowley know firsthand how weather itself in November had a unique way behind testing any master's knowledge and experience? Uh, yes, they did. They both could look back at past storm-related events. Now, are we talking about past storm-related events that they were involved in or uh, storm-related events that happened well before they um, began their careers or perhaps before they were born? Uh, I would say choice B in terms of uh, looking back at past storm-related events that occurred uh, well before uh, they were born. Hang tight for just a moment, folks. So uh, what I'm going to do here, folks, is I'm going to talk about two um, two uh, ship. I would say they're not uh, individual shipwrecks, but it, it, the uh, two stories I'm going to tell you all are uh, powerful. They uh, obviously occurred in the 20th century. Uh, they both did, I should say. One occurred at the start of the 20th century. The other occurred uh, right. It occurred uh, before World War II ended. But it. Um, but from what I read in terms of uh, synopsis on both of them, very harrowing to say the least. So uh, let's be prepared for the uh, first one here. The final three days of November 1905, 118 years ago, folks. And uh, in 1905, obviously, uh, Theodore Roosevelt is uh, president of the United States. He's, um, he is, uh, he, uh, a year earlier, in November of 1904, he won um, election uh, for a full four-year term. He had finished out uh, William McKinley's um, second four-year term, given that uh, Mc President William McKinley had been assassinated in uh, September of 1901. So the final three days of November 1905 saw a storm slam through Minnesota only to establish its presence on Lake Superior. And of course, Lake Superior is the biggest of the five Great Lakes. You could fit all, you could fit all the other four Great Lakes, folks. I kid you not, Michigan, Huron, Erie, and Ontario, all those four Great Lakes combined could fit into Lake Superior. That's how big... Um, Superior is, and of course, is the um, Chippewa, most notably uh, the Ojibwe or the Chippewa, often referred to uh, Lake Superior as Gitchagumi. And for those of you who are curious to know exactly why uh, the Indians referred to Lake Superior as Gitchagumi, they called it the Big Lake. And how true uh, that Superior lives up to its uh, definition as being uh, the Big Lake. So, the final three days of November 1905 saw a, a huge storm slam through Minnesota only to establish its presence on Lake Superior, resulting in both wrecking to stranding multiple vessels and barges. And sadly, folks, 28 men's lives were taken, including nine along a 430-foot freighter known as the Matafa, 
That's spelled M-A-T-A-A as an Alpha F-A, the Matafa, 430-foot freighter. The Matafa split and lay aground near the port of Duluth's entry. So this vessel was trying to make its way into uh, the port of Duluth. And as uh, I may have told you from previous uh, podcast segment episode, that uh, Duluth is up in uh, northeast Minnesota, not far from Superior, Wisconsin. As a matter of fact, you can northeast Minnesota borders uh, northwest Wisconsin, and uh, Duluth and Superior pretty much meet up with one another. So, yes, the Matafa, sadly, folks, it did not make it into uh, the fully into the uh, port of Duluth's entry. The nine men whom died on the Matafa were trapped on the boat's back. They ultimately froze to death due to sub-zero temperatures. I, I, I can't imagine um, losing a loved one. Um, not only so much... It's, it's one thing, yes, it's, it's sad enough if you lost a loved one in a storm out on the Great Lakes waters, but to lose a loved one to death near, um, say, Duluth's entry, and you lost your loved one whom froze to death due to sub-zero temperatures, I think it's fair to say that even in 1905, folks, I mean, anybody who was out on the waters would have been as warmly dressed as possible but we probably do need to keep in mind that not everyone had access to access to um i don't know if i would say top of the line is the right word but they may not have had access to uh the most adequate of clothing that could have kept them fully warm against sub-zero temperatures i would have no doubts in my mind that many of these if not all these nine men did everything they could to huddle uh, next to one another for warmth purposes, but even that alone was probably not enough to uh, ensure survival. I have uh, read of stories where where men who were stranded on the waters of the Great Lakes and and the uh, temperatures got so brutally cold, they um, were forced to um, they were forced to take apart. Um, wood from the sh- from the vessel say the vessel ran aground and uh whatever and say uh certain sections endured damage to where the vessel was hanging by it was still staying afloat by a thread those men were forced to take whatever they could wood wise and um burn it and and make a fire but burn the wood as means of um generating more uh warmth so in the most um how do you call it in the most um daring of of situations whatever you had at your disposal to burn even if it was something you didn't want to burn but if you knew it was a matter of life or death you did what was necessary sadly these nine men who died on the matafa did not have uh, the adequate means of being able to um, find whatever was necessary in a matter of uh, of a few short minutes they uh, sadly all froze to death very sad Moving on to the next story, of we go to November 11th of 1940, and I have um, I did some reading on this one, not just uh, leading up to this episode, but I've read about it before uh, online, uh, briefly through good old Wikipedia. November 11th, 1940, Armistice Day, which uh, 
came about at the end of World War One on the 11th hour of the 11th day of 1918. So 22 years after World War One's end, on November 11th, 1940, Armistice Day, an intense storm made its way into Minnesota and onward to Lake Superior, Michigan, and Huron, claiming the lives of 49 in Minnesota and 150 throughout the Midwest. The weather here, folks, was unseasonably warm earlier in the day, which caught, I, I kid you not, folks, the duck hunters. Think about it, many of these, uh, if not all of them, but I would say most of them, the duck hunters went out in probably in shorts, probably jeans with a short sleeve shirt. You know, hey, it's unseasonably warm. We've got nothing to worry about. It's probably going to be this way for the rest of the day. Well, believe it or not, folks, the duck hunters end up getting caught off guard as the weather suddenly changed out of nowhere due to plummeting temperatures that produced 70 mile an hour winds. Large waves. There is no way now, folks, for these duck hunters to seek shelter in their boats. Even if they got in enough time to their boats for seeking shelter, they still would have probably gotten tossed overboard if they didn't have, even if they had a life jacket to keep them afloat, um, there's no guarantee that they might have uh, been able to have um, been rescued. Sadly, folks, many of these. Um, individuals um, either froze to death or drowned. 66 sailors perished during the storm also. I think one lesson here, folks, is that, you know, yes, the weather might be unseasonably warm earlier in the day, but if you want to modify your chances of survival, you probably are better off, you're better off bringing backup pairs of clothes. In other words, sure, you can wear a short sleeve shirt in the morning, but you never know when things are going to change. I mean, it's 50-50 it's hindsight. But at the same time, it's no matter how prepared you are, I guess the, the irony to it is that Mother Nature will somehow find a way to prevail. So it's just one of those reminders that, hey, you know, we can, we can think one thing, but all of a sudden when the weather changes, then it's like, oh my gosh, we're up a creek. What do we do now? Well, speaking of weather in November 1966, let's find out some more. How could November 1966 weather-wise in Michigan be best described? One that was marked by drastic fluctuations. And I was really blown away when I uh, read this book at just how drastically the weather had changed in the month of November. The start in the very end of November 1966 was considered, or I should marked as being unseasonably cold with above then average precipitation. So we're talking about freezing rain, but most notably snowfall amounts for the month. So at the very start, folks, like say November 1st to the 5th, and then at the very end, we're talking about like say right after, around Thanksgiving time or just right after Thanksgiving between that time range. But the middle of November, folks, um, turned out to be the extreme opposite, where temperatures turned warm and mild. That's, I'm really wondering now, folks, at the, the middle of November, with these warm temperatures, and now all of a sudden seeing um, 
what do you call it, un- unseasonably cold now kicking back in at the start at the very end of November. I, I can see now where a um, where a cyclone. Uh, I don't know if cyclone's the right word, but I can just see now where something um, uh, something really really bad is going to happen, and not just say for one ship but say for other vessels, um, maybe even people going from point A to point B, because folks, you know, you don't have to always be on the waters to endure the brunt of bad weather. Motorists driving from point A to point B can get caught in such things as blinding uh, snow or um, uh, or snow that can turn to snow drifts, blizzard to where you're left paralyzed on the road. The cold snap from the end of November was very tense. Michigan's UP, or what is known as the Upper Peninsula, and the uh, Upper Peninsula, in case you all, for some of you who aren't familiar with Michigan, uh, the uh, Mackinac Bridge is what separates Michigan's northernmost mainland section from the Upper Peninsula. So to get from from the northern mainland of Michigan, say, yeah, from the northern mainland of Michigan to uh, the the UP or the Upper Peninsula, you have to go through what is called the uh, Straight the uh, Mackinac Bridge. So uh, yes, the cold snap that came about from the end of November is very tense. Uh, Michigan's uh, UP or Upper Peninsula is deeply impacted by the sudden drastic changes. Blizzard conditions, folks, stranded over two hundred cars with many motorists whom were returning home following Thanksgiving holiday. 60-mile-an-hour winds brought down trees and power lines. Half of all houses in Marquette, which is in the Upper Peninsula, it's in uh, Marquette's in the central part of the Upper Peninsula, but it's west of uh, Sault Ste. Marie, which is in the eastern part of the UP. Marquette, uh, uh, half of all houses in Marquette, folks, ended up losing power. And of course, you're left to wonder that with um, with blizzard conditions and the loss of power, now you're left to wonder how soon is power going to even be restored? It's probably not going to be restored overnight, maybe a week at best. You just never know with these things. The storm, uh, the storm itself, though, moved uh, south of the Upper Peninsula, producing high winds and heavy snow. November 28th of 1966 saw both the Daniel J- SS Daniel J. Morrell and SS Edward Y. Townsend sail directly into the heart of the current storm. Folks, it sounds like these ships are playing with a little fire. I'm beginning to wonder if, um, ca- even though uh, Arthur Crowley hasn't been a captain for very long, I think it's fair to say that both he and... Um, and uh, Captain uh, Thomas Connolly, to me, if I had, I think it's fair to say that they are uh, the heavy weather captains. In other words, they aren't afraid to take chances, despite knowing uh, the risks that uh, go into doing this stuff, especially in the month of November. But this is, to me, if you if you want to be a heavy weather captain, you do have to put all fears aside, for better and for worse. So uh, here's our uh, next question here. Did Dennis Hale receive a fair amount of uh, verbal abuse after boarding the Morel in Ontario, Canada? 
Remember, folks, he had had a history of being uh, tardy um, and not always making it on time. And, of course, uh, Captain Crowley did tell him and uh, John Grow uh, to meet them, to meet the uh, vessel at the uh, at the dock in, on, in uh, Ontario. Yes. And we did learn that uh, Captain Crowley was uh, very shorthanded and needed all the help he could get at the very end of the season. So he didn't um, he didn't lecture him, but obviously I think it's fair to say deep down that he probably did not like the fact that there was tardiness. But the answer is yes here. But the irony to it is that it didn't bother Dennis Hale. And it, the reason why it didn't bother him is because this was typical for shipmates to act this way towards one another when crew members did not arrive on schedule. Okay, so this is just a little... Um, how do you call it? It's a little, um, I don't know if I'd say camaraderie kind of, um, what do you call it, kind of a tactic. Uh, but the bottom line is, is that nobody's immune from it. But the question is uh, now going forward, okay, uh, okay, if I am tardy and all that, uh, I still have a job to do. I still have, I still have to be accountable going forward with all the tasks that lie before me, uh, given that we have... Um, given that we, that we have a destination to go to, given that we have um, goods to deliver, in this case being um, a, a heaping amount of coal. So, I mean, this is no joyride, but I still have to be held accountable for, for the rest of this uh, trip. So, yes, it's always essential for crew members to work together as a team. So, in other words, we there cannot be any such thing as I, me, myself. It has to be us, we, ourselves. Because we never know at any moment's notice when things are going to change for the worse. And everybody has to uh, work together as a team, even under pressure. Once you start flinching, once you start breaking down, then how is the rest of the crew going to be able to work? In other words, if there are... If there are um, crewmen whom, whom are not up to doing their job because they can't handle the pressure of, say, 10 to 20-foot waves coming, or let alone anything else that could happen to the ship, then how is that going to impact the rest of the crew? In other words, we've all got to work together through the best of times and through the most challenging of times. I think what, what should be worth pointing out about uh, being on a um, freighter, like a Great Lakes freighter, is where you are positioned, not just in terms of your title or your rank, but where you might be lodging. As for uh, crew quarters on the Daniel J. Morrell, they were located near the crewmen's uh, workstations. Engine room and vessel's uh, kitchen were located in the boat's stern section, being in the back. The forward sections, in terms of lodging, were held by officers, wheelsmen, watchmen, and deckhands. Dennis Hale, being a watchman, would have uh, been, his, um, his room would have been placed, would have been in the forward section, or what we call the bow of the ship. And Dennis Hale was fortunate enough to have had his own cabin. Most crewmen, folks, had to share uh, cabin rooms. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's usually how it was. If you had your own room, you were, um, I mean, you were, it was a, um, how do we, how do I call it? It was a, um, 
And I don't think it's something that should be taken lightly, but but it's not something that should be taken for granted. Maybe that's the best way to sum it up. Engineers, oilers, firemen, coal passers, cooks, and porters, who were the stewards' assistants, all had rooms in the ship's stern, being in the back. How many uh, shifts did each crew person work per day? How about two four-hour shifts per day? Dennis Hale worked shifts from 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. and from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. Got to remember, folks, you know, you know, yes, the ship is out on the water, but it can't always be up to the captain and the wheelsmen to do the jobs. The watchmen, uh, you know, the watchmen have to be on duty um, all times of the day. Uh, that is, you know, every person who's a watchman has to be assigned shifts to cover one shift in the morning and one in the evening. But again, you can't, not everything can always be left up to the captain whom can be looking out with his binoculars and the wheelsman whom's, uh, whom is navigating the wheel. You know, everybody's got a job to do. No matter how big or small the tasks are, everybody has to contribute. If not, then you should not be on, on the voyage. Around 7.30 a.m., November 28th, SS Daniel J. Morrell departs from uh, the dock. Another watch person uh, agreed to take the last 30, minute, uh, 30 minutes of uh, Dennis Hale's uh, shift. And they're uh, leaving out of Ontario, Canada, I will say. The weather is changing by now as wind speeds increased with forecast calling for either rain or snow. Stu Campbell, who was the Daniel J. Morrell's wheelsman, he conversed with Dennis Hale over weather, all things weather-related, but he assured Dennis Hale that all would be safe. As much as we sometimes like to believe that everything will be safe, sometimes you have to wonder, what if something does happen? I don't want to live in fear, but what if something does happen? And what if and what if something does happen that ends up being so bad that that it's only a matter of minutes with regards to to knowing whether or not we'll survive? I mean, you don't want to live your life in fear, but there's always going to be that one time where something drastically can go wrong to where the situation could just be so bad to where in a matter of a few minutes it's it's we're looking at life and death so it's like the saying as i said earlier i'll say it again here nothing is ever certain in the month of november on the great lakes so for dennis hale he has he now has eight hours to spare before 4 p.m being his next shift um so he's obviously going to catch up on sleep. If I were Dennis Hale, I, I would do that because you you need all the sleep there is to be ready to go uh, come 4 p.m. Uh, late afternoon. After the Morell's dock departure, did overall sailing along Lake Huron improve with every hour going by? No. Uh, for starters, both the Morell and the Townsend were going directly into the storm as they each battered heavy winds that changed course without warning. You know, it's one thing to issue a forecast to say that winds are coming out of the north at 10 to 20 miles an hour. But in 1966, folks, we didn't have uh, weather technology that could tell us an hour later that winds are now coming out of the northwest or northeast. 
So yes, we have um, both vessels are going directly into the storm as they are battering heavy winds that changed course without heavy uh, without um, warning starting from the north. Now all of a sudden the winds are moving northeast to northwest. Secondly, uh, despite the winds picking up to wave sizes increasing, the captains per each vessel were handling everything well. I think it's remarkable, considering that the hulls of each vessel are 60 years old. But there again, we have to wonder, are, these whole, are both ships going to make it? Or is one ship going to make it and the other not? But what about the hulls? You know, both of these ships are 60 years old, folks. And, you know, as I may have mentioned from the pre, from a previous podcast, not, you know, appliances have a mind of their own. Automobiles have a mind of their own. Ships, trains, planes, <laughs> planes, trains, automobiles, and other vessels, and other, auto, and other um, means of transportation like a ferry boat or, or a, a, a cargo freighter itself, they have a mind of they they all have minds of their own because there are going to be instances when they're going to give out scary to say but it does happen so yes it is good to know that uh, that the vessels are that are are handling the storms well but there's no guarantee that um that they uh will be able to perhaps make it through the rest of the way fine after 3 p.m. on November 28th, that is when the weather began to show signs of fury. Captain Connolly of the SS Townsend reported to uh, Captain Crawley of the SS Morell. Captain uh, Townsend uh, saw waves at 8 feet around mid-afternoon. But sometime, uh, in mid-afternoon being 3 o'clock, but sometime after one hour or more past three o'clock, the waves grew to where Captain Connolly spotted them at 12 feet long. The waves grew as the winds exceeded 50 miles an hour and came from two directions at the same time. It's, all, it's challenging enough when the wind is coming from just one direction, but how about from two different directions? The ships encountered blizzard snow along with getting steered off course. So if you've got winds from different directions coming at you at the same time, yeah, there is a very, very good likelihood that you can get steered off course. Besides the Great Lakes, what other uh, bodies of water in the United States would get issued uh, gale warnings for maritime purposes? How about oceans, sounds, estuaries? Oceans, uh, how about the Atlantic Ocean? Uh, the estuary, when I think of estuaries, I think of uh, the Chesapeake Bay being one of the largest estuaries in the United States. You know, most people think that the water is always calm on the Chesapeake Bay. No, it's not. Uh, the Chesapeake Bay has had many of uh, instances throughout its history where um, storms have been very, very powerful to where they have uh, taken the lives of many. Um, along the waters of uh, Delaware, uh, Maryland, and Virginia, for example. So it just goes to show you that, you know, as I said earlier, yeah, weather may look great early on in the day, but come afternoon, it's a whole nother ball game.
you know, I mentioned last from the last podcast about uh, I mentioned um, briefly about uh, what a gale was. I, you know, I remember giving you all a 101 uh, definition on uh, what a gale itself was. Well, uh, it's still used today, but there is what's called a flag system that is uh, used uh, with regards to um, to determining the, the severity of a, of a gale warning. So if the flag systems comprise of the following. If, if you have a flag that has two red pennants on it, that is what is called a um, gale warning. And the gale warning being uh, winds in the range of 39 to 54 miles per hour or anything exceeding the 54 mile per hour uh, maximum uh, threshold uh, for a gale warning. If you receive one flag, that indicates a small craft advisory being a wind advisory with winds below the 39 to 54 mile per hour range uh, a, a small craft advisory being you know aka the wind advisory would uh, have the wind range at between 25 to 38 miles per hour come 10 p.m. on November 28th captains Crawley and Connolly communicated via radio phone the Townsend was eight miles north of Harbor Beach, not far from the tip of Lower Michigan's thumb. And if you look at the state of Michigan, folks, the um, northeastern part of Michigan is, um, is, is kind of shaped like a thumb. So basically, you have to go north of Detroit and north of Flint to um, get into the area that is known as the thumb of Michigan. Whereas the SS Daniel J. Morrell was positioned 15 miles north of, of uh, SS Townsend, Captain Connolly became very concerned about his vessel steering off course due to wind direction change and the chance of getting stuck in a trough, or what is referred to as a hollow, with multiple wave crests coming at once. 12 a.m. November 29th, Enormous waves began attacking each vessel from beneath, coming at 250 to 300 foot intervals, folks. I, I can't imagine uh, dealing with waves that are coming um, from below at 250 to 300 foot intervals. And this, folks, is what we refer to as, uh, with regards to uh, crests or... Um, at the wave's highest surface. The trough would be the lowest part of the waves, uh, the lowest, uh, the lower level of the wave's um, impact, but the uh, crest is the wave's highest surface part. And as I mentioned earlier, each freighter's hull is 60 years old. Is it fair to say that each freighter's hull is going to endure a beating? Oh, sure. How about excessive twisting? And by excessive twisting, you know, it's bad enough uh, during the winter season that um, that the uh, steel that was used most notably before 1948, that this steel is very brittle. It, it's, it becomes more uncertain and more, um, how do you call it, uh, shaky. In other words, the steel that was built before 1948 is not going to be as durable it's not going to be as tough 
It's not going to probably be as resistant as steel that was built from 1948 and onward. So I'm sure some of you are wondering why in the world is um, Bethlehem Steel taking this um, vessel or these vessels out into the waters? Why have they allowed this? I mean, why have they allowed this? I, I mean, it's a good question. Yes, you know, it's important to make, yes, on one hand, it's important to make some extra money, but, you know, it's just a matter of time before the holes could just give out altogether, and then you've got life and death situation. You know, there's only so much beating a ship is going to be able to take. So if you've got excessive twisting with the holes, how about rivets per each vessel coming apart? Well, they did begin to come apart, uh, rivets did. You know, it's easy to think that when rivets get installed in, that they'll be tough as a rock. Well, when you've got waves, as I mentioned earlier, that are coming from below at 250 to 300 foot intervals, that is, that's a huge beating. And yeah, those, those rivets can come off, folks. They, they really can. I can believe it. I've not seen it in person, but I can just believe it based upon what I've read. How about uh, large seas? Or I should say waves lifting each vessel's sterns, the back sections out of the water. You know, folks, uh, it's always easy to assume that a boat can just stay calmly afloat in brutal uh, conditions. No, no. If the conditions are just right, anything is anything is fair game. So if if the vessel's uh, sterns are being uh, lifted out of the water due to large seas, uh, you know, large waves or I should say swells, then yeah, um, to me, seeing the uh, stern coming out of the water, you know, th that probably is frightening in a way. Because then you have to wonder what's going to happen next. Is the ship going to just simply break apart? At this point, if you're if the back of your ship is coming out of the water, anything is possible now. That is not for the better. Captains Crowley uh, and uh, Connolly kept in touch with one another, but Captain Connolly, uh, per the advice of another captain named Captain James Van Buskirk of the freighter Benson Ford, advised him to seek shelter at Thunder Bay. Prior to 12 a.m. November 29th, Captain Crawley contacted Captain Connolly, but Captain Connolly told him that he had something else at the moment that he needed to uh, finish up on and would, call, would contact him back, which he did. At around 12.15 a.m. on the... Uh, 29th of November 1966, they spoke and shared challenges currently uh, being faced with that were not for the better. Captain Crawley reported getting blown off the proper navigation course path. Both men um, did wish one another well and went about resuming their tasks. But little did either captain know that after 12.15 a.m. on November 29th of 1966, that they would never speak to one another again. I can't imagine, folks, say, um, being Captain um, Connolly, 
But then again, I can't imagine being Captain Crowley either and not realizing that after this conversation that it would be the last time that I would be speaking to my fellow comrade again. It probably never crossed either one of their minds. But just knowing that, okay, I've spoken with you. Yes, I have no doubts that I'll probably speak with you again at some point later on. As much as we always would like to believe that that is the truth, even in the most um, challenging of situations like this one here, where knowing, especially in the month of November, where nothing is ever certain, I think it ought to be a, a reminder that everything may seem fine one minute. Even while the going is tough, and despite what they both uh, men's uh, vessels had dealt with, there is always that possibility that one vessel might survive, but the other may not. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, episode, and I look forward to being back on the air with you guys next time. When, I'm, when I am on the air again next, we're going to talk about uh, a chapter called Lost. In other words, we're going to learn more about, um, about um, given that we already know what the title is to this, being the sinking of the Daniel J. Morrell, but what we are going to learn now, folks, is the final um, minutes of the Daniel J. Morrell. And, and what I mean by the final minutes of the Daniel J. Morrell, that is the final minutes of her life afloat. So when I'm on the air again next, folks, we're going to uh, learn about how the Daniel J. Morrell sank and how the game of survival took takes on a whole new uh, meaning. Well, thank you for your time as always. I look forward to being back on the air with you all. And no matter where you all live, continue to stay safe. <laughs>